Welcome to Primal Body, Primal Mind. Your host, Nora Gedgaudis, is here to take you on a fun-filled and informational journey through the mind and your body with a focus on neurofeedback and healthy nutrition and what it can do for you, your family, and friends. Now, here's your host, Nora Gedgaudis. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, your source for cutting-edge information about your body and brain that you aren't likely to find anyplace else. Well, my name, of course, is Nora Gedgaudis, and I am your host this hour, bringing you a topic today that um, I think a lot of people listening can relate to, whether they happen to realize it or not. Um, our topic for today is the psychology of food addiction. Now, I run into food addiction issues every day in working with my clients, and, um, and it can be a very real obstacle to progress, whether we're talking about neurofeedback or we're talking about the desire to make healthy dietary changes, food addictions can get in the way of moving forward. And like any other addiction, people often find themselves in denial um, or rationalization and justification. It's really easy to miss the signs sometimes. So how do you know if you have a real addiction and what can you do about it? Well, unlike something... Like alcohol or drugs, food, of course, is unique in that it's fundamental to our very survival, right? I mean, eating is a primal instinct. So some of us just eat in order to live, and others, it seems, live to eat. What's the difference? Why should some people be much more preoccupied with food than others? Are there certain foods that are more likely to create addiction in us than others? Well, as a nutritional therapist, one question that we sometimes ask our clients is, uh, what are the foods that you most couldn't live without? And the answer often clues you into the very addictive substances that a person most likely needs to remove from their diet, or at least try removing for a time. So food sensitivities can be a huge culprit when it comes to food addiction. And why is that? Well, as anyone would maybe guess, that any food to which a person happen to, happens to have a sensitivity, um, that's going to cause your body stress. And that physiological stress tends to generate endorphin production. Now, endorphins, of course, are very naturally addictive uh, neurochemical, uh, like your brain's version of morphine. And uh, some foods, like gluten-containing grains and, and certain milk products, contain what are called exorphins morphine-like compounds that are commonly addictive to those that consume them. Uh, sometimes it's both. And sugar and starch have their own physiological addictive effects independent of other factors I just mentioned. So a person with strong metabolic adaptation to sugar is their primary source of fuel, for instance, or, one, uh, or, or maybe a person who's hypoglycemic or reactive hypoglycemic or somebody with candida overgrowth or even parasites might consider sugar an irresistible temptation. In other words, sometimes it may not even be you that's craving it. <laughs> this all happens on a whole lot of levels. So how do we spot the truth in ourselves and others? And what role can technology play in freeing us from unhealthy tendencies that we find too difficult to resist? Well, here today to talk with us about all of the psychology and, and dynamics behind addiction is my dear friend and, and respected colleague, John Anderson of the Minnesota Neurotherapy Institute. Now, John has a master's degree in psychology. 
He's also licensed as an alcohol and drug counselor and is certified in biofeedback and neurofeedback by the Biofeedback Certification Institute of America, BCIA. Um, he's a student in holistic and traditional healing methods for more than 30 years now, and John has worked to blend this knowledge and experience with the most recent research in psychology, neurophysiology, and developmental neurotechnology. It is a very real treat and honor for me to welcome one of my favorite people walking loose on the planet, John Anderson, to the show. Welcome, John. Thank you, Nora. It's really uh, great you're to so here. welcome. So, you know, this is kind of a loaded subject. We've got, we've got um, kind of our work cut out for us today and sorting through all this and really kind of helping people maybe see themselves in a light that can help them recognize these issues. Now, for starters... Maybe we could start by you sharing your own uh, background with addictions work. Well, uh, I started with addiction work in the mid-70s, uh, which was actually after I got into biofeedback. I got into biofeedback about 1974, and prior to that, I had my own addiction issues with drugs and alcohol, uh, which I was able to uh, eliminate or get rid of through a various... Uh, programs that I was involved in, um, and then I got involved in biofeedback, and I was looking for a way of combining the two, and so I got involved in addiction treatment and um, branched off from there into doing biofeedback pretty much full-time. Yeah. But the interesting thing for me was that, um, and I think this is true basically uh, essentially uh, in relating to what you said and what my experience has been both with myself and my clients is that even though we may stop a particular drug or substance or behavior of addiction, uh, we tend to translate it into something else. And for me it was uh, moving into food addiction. Yeah. So that continued for many years, and eventually I was diagnosed with celiac, and I stopped eating wheat, but I continued to eat grains and sugars. And uh, it wasn't until I was able to decrease and then eliminate those substances that I really began to see the hold that food had on me, even after I'd stopped using drugs and alcohol. So... Yeah, that you know, that's an interesting thing that I was actually going to bring up later, but we may as well talk about it now, that, you know, there seems to be this sort of um, interesting connection sometimes between, you know, between food addiction and drug addiction. In other words, you know, food addiction becoming a substitute for drug addiction right. or maybe some of the mechanisms, you know, involved in, in, in both these things, one just sort of transferring over to the other and, and sort of camp that the addiction sort of camouflaging itself in a manner of speaking where foods are concerned. Well, and having the same mechanisms as I was doing a little research for the show, I was struck by the similarities in the research in food addiction and the research in drug addiction and the similarities in the brain changes that occur with both kinds of addictions. Oh wow. Uh, mostly what I was finding is that the orbital frontal cortex, which is an area of uh, regulation of drive and um, motivation. Now, for for people who don't know what that big sure. word was that John just, <laughs> you know, the the orbital frontal cortex, basically the sort of your the front of your forehead, right. you know, the part of your brain that's right behind your your eyebrows, pretty much. Right. That right? hangs out over your eyeballs. Right. Yeah. Yep. 
that's really involved in motivation and, and your drives, various drives, and in sort of um, setting the tone for how important something is, and among other things. It has a lot of other functions uh, in terms of decision-making and problem-solving. And, and, and limbic sort of stuff, yeah. Right. right. But that was implicated in, in the sense that when a person is in a craving state, that area is really hyper-activated. Uh, and when they're withdrawing from the craving state or when they're not using the substance that uh, triggers that, they go into a very hypoactive in, or a lowered level of activation in that area, which makes them feel very sluggish and lacking in drive and lacking in motivation and lacking in the ability to get up and, and do what they need to do. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I... Of course, we know that the hypothalamus also plays um, a very real role in a yeah, lot of this, definitely. deciding whether or not we're hungry and what and we're going to do with what we eat. Craving substances. Yep. The hypothalamus is very much involved in that. Yep. And at such a level that we're not consciously aware of the craving in some ways. Right. I mean, we may feel something in in, in drug addiction. You, you find yourself uh, saying, I am not going to use that substance anymore. And then an hour later, you find yourself using that substance almost unconsciously. Right, because the part of your brain that makes that decision, you know, or, or, or the part of your brain that says, I'm not going to use drugs, isn't the part of your brain that's actually making the decision about whether to use drugs. Exactly. <laughs> or and the same is true with food. Right. So we find ourselves eating the, the very things that we've determined are bad for us. Right. Um, partly because of the things that you mentioned, uh, sensitivities triggering that uh, craving. Uh, but the actual behavior of using the substance uh, seems to be a very unconscious process. Well, and the, the issue with food, too, is, is really interesting because we have a conditioning that starts when we're children that tells us that certain foods are to be thought of as rewards. Yes. You know, um, so we look upon, you know, we're, we're taught at a young age to look upon sugar as 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 a positive thing, as a reward for certain behaviors or um, or just because, you know, we're, we're a nice kid or, or whatever. And, you know, of course, adults have a huge role to play in setting this whole thing up to begin with. And then later in life, you know, we have a crappy day at work or, you know, whatever happens. And we look upon sometimes certain foods as sort of an entitlement, like I'm entitled right. <laughs> to that sort of, to that compensation for the way I feel. I'm entitled to that or just that little bit isn't going to hurt me. People say, I deserve a, a, a donut right now because I had such a crappy day. Right, exactly. And and it's not seen as that much of a negative. It's seen as kind of an innocent little indulgence. Right. And, uh, you know, which, of course, may not be so uh, innocent at all. Right. So, um, so what other mechanisms in, in the brain, uh, you know, play a role in this? Well, there are lots of ascending, uh, when I say ascending, I mean from lower centers up to uh, higher centers of the brain, uh, structures and functions, uh, particularly in the limbic system, uh, things like the amygdala, the hippocampus, uh, structures that are fairly well known to neuroscientists, but the lay public uh, doesn't necessarily hear those words very much, um, the thalamus as well. Uh, have mechanisms, interactive mechanisms with this frontal area of the brain 
that tend to stimulate and trigger that kind of behavior. And so there are structures that are uh, sometimes thought of as control mechanisms yep. that elicit certain responses in the thinking brain that we're not consciously aware of where that motivation came from because they're coming from these subcortical structures that are not part of the thinking process per se. Right, right. And the cortex, of course, is the thinking brain, and what lies underneath the cortex is more of our emotional brain. Correct. Right. right. And, 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 you know, anybody that thinks that they're being driven by their conscious thoughts, <laughs> I mean, the conscious mind is probably the most narcissistic entity in the universe. It thinks it's running the show. Exactly. It's, you know, quite seriously, I think, deluded in that regard, and it's quite offended at the idea that it may not be necessarily... Um, you know, operating things. I know when I introduce a new client to neurofeedback and then I explain, you know, they're sitting, well, how do I make this thing work? You know, they're watching the spaceships or, you know, uh, the, or the ball go across the screen and sweep away dots. And they're like, well, how am I doing this? And it's like, well, you know, your conscious mind really isn't that active a participant in this. And they're, they, they, they just can't even wrap themselves around that. And, um, now, in you know, contrast, children... We actually, I'm hearing the music, we need to go to our first break. Okay. Um, so, everybody, we've got John Anderson from the Minnesota Neurotherapy Institute here talking with us today about the whole, all the mechanisms behind addiction. And we're talking about specifically food addiction today. So, everybody, please stick around. I'm Nora Gagoutis. You're listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, and we will be back in just a minute. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. NBC Science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Gedgoudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended, a jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgoudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com. Want to learn more about neurofeedback? Want to find a trained clinician for yourself or for a loved one? Or maybe you are a professional looking to offer this powerful, non-invasive technique to improve results for your toughest clients. At EEG Info, we are the leading provider of neurofeedback resources, videos, and training for the next generation of neurofeedback professionals. If you want to improve symptoms of emotional and behavioral dysfunction, this non-invasive approach is the answer you've been looking for. Neurofeedback is successful in helping people of all ages achieve a feeling of greater health and well-being. Visit us at eeginfo.com today to learn more about neurofeedback or to find a local clinician who can help you or someone you love. Unlock the full potential of your brain today. Visit eeginfo.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Well, welcome back to the show, everybody. We're here today talking about the subject of food addictions and the psychology of food addiction and how to recognize signs of food addiction and also how to address that. And talking with us today about this is John Anderson from the Minnesota Neurotherapy Institute who is licensed as a drug and alcohol counselor and has a background and a long-standing interest in this whole topic. And, um, you know, what, what, John, what would you say that some of the classic signs of addiction are? In other words, what sort of general psychological tendencies do you see in addictive behavior? Are there certain predictable signposts uh, we can look for? Well, the general uh, consensus is that denial is a big factor. Yeah. So we deny that we have a problem. Uh, we rationalize away our behaviors. Uh, we uh, continue to perform the same behaviors even in the face of damaging consequences. Right. Uh, so when we experience harmful consequences, we blame them on others, we project, uh, we claim that they are not related to our behavior, that they're just things that happen to us or we come up with some other rationalization or idea. But essentially we deny that there's a problem and we uh, project our, the blame for that onto other people. And we continue to persist even in the presence of negative uh, reactions. Right, and of course with food it's a much more insidious thing because so many foods are seen as either being harmless or sometimes even healthy. Right. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, food, of course, is one of those things that's just sort of, uh, you know, that's very basic to us. You know, everybody eats. And um, and a lot of times cravings for foods or, or indulgences in certain foods are seen as a perfectly normal course of things. And I think in part because it's such a a commonly experienced problem but um, all the denials and or or the sense of uh, of harm that food may be causing, other than maybe weight gain, is something that either eludes people because they don't understand what foods are able to do to them, um, or the effects are subtle and slow over time, or sometimes people are just simply out of touch with their own bodies in a way that make them oblivious to what a food is actually doing to them. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things we were cautioned about when I was going to school for addiction counseling was to not assess our clients for substance addiction based on our own use of those substances. Uh-huh. So if we were, if, for example, if I was a heavy drinker and I had a client come in and say, well, I'm drinking, you know, a six-pack a night when I get home, and I was to compare that with my own use I would say, well, a six-pack, that's no big deal. Uh, We have sort of a cultural understanding or expectation of what our food intake should be that we all kind of agree that this is all good and this is all the way it should be and this is all right and this is all normal. And we have people, doctors on television telling us, you know, to avoid fat and to avoid animal uh, protein and to avoid this and to avoid that, and then we'll be healthy. And if we eat just a lot of grains and we eat a lot of this and that and just minimize the sugar, 
we'll all be fine. And we get this in every form of media uh, coming at us daily. And any contradictory perspective, uh, everybody says, well, we all know that that's not true. You, right. you can't eat red meat. That's a bad thing. Right, right. Uh, you can't eat eggs. That's a terrible thing. Right. You're going to get high cholesterol. You're going to die of a heart attack. You need to eat 11 servings of grains a day. That's exactly. how you know. Exactly. Right. I mean, I don't think a lot of people take food addiction as seriously as they might take, say, a drug addiction. But it's kind of the same thing. People have pharmacologic reactions to food, whether they're aware of it or not. But, of course, you know, the difference is that food is legal right. and it's everywhere. And necessary. Yeah, well, right. Um, Some food, anyway, real food. Um, And it's that much harder to overcome. And, of course, we're all surrounded by by pushers. (laughs) Commercials on TV, fast food restaurants on every freaking corner, you know, candy bars at the checkout stand. And like illicit or even legal drugs, food can kill you um, a little bit at a time maybe. But uh, the long-term consequences can be just as bleak. I was looking at a couple of old ads from the 50s, and they had uh, pictures of babies drinking uh, 7-Up and Coke, Coke. Oh, Coke. really? Yes. And they were saying, how early is too early? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, well, apparently not early enough for the food companies. That doesn't shouldn't surprise me at all but yeah the sooner that you it, it really the you know the long-term profits of course with the food industry start with getting people conditioned to think about their products or to get turned on to their products as early as possible right so then it's just simply a natural part of your existence well the statistics show that uh if you grow up in a family with of smokers if your parents smoke you're much more likely to smoke yourself that's the same is true of using uh, harmful food substances and harmful food behaviors, you learn it uh, in infancy, and it's locked in unless you really spend a lot of time learning to change it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, one one person uh, asked, uh, I, I, you know, I had uh, some of my listeners email me uh, some questions, and uh, one person asked, so why do some people get addicted to certain foods and others don't? I mean, are some people just born with addictive personalities? Uh, the research shows that there are certain brain types, uh, genetic types, who respond in a particular way to certain substances. Uh, this is true of uh, alcohol, for example. Uh, some people produce the metabolite of alcohol that uh, is like an opiate that yeah. bonds with the opiate receptors, and some people don't. Mm-hmm. And so those folks who produce that opiate-like substance are much more likely to become addicted to alcohol, for example, than people who don't have that characteristic. Uh, there are lots of other uh, genetic and, and familial sorts of uh, characteristics in terms of uh, reward. Yeah, like reward deficiency syndrome exactly. that uh, Ken Bloom talks about. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be uh, possibly genetic, but it's also influenced by upbringing and behavior and environment and uh, how how you feel about yourself and how you've uh, adjusted to the world and how successful you are in other areas. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that question ends up being pretty complicated and you know um and I and I would, you know, also say it depends. Yes. Um you know, it depends on where your inherent weaknesses lie and I think we're only as strong as our is our weakest point. 
and you know people that get addicted to sugar for instance are often inherently prone to hypoglycemia for instance right. and they're also metabolically adapted um, certainly to sugar is their primary source of fuel in that instance and people addicted to grain-based foods may also just be hypoglycemic or they may have gluten sensitivities that give them an endorphin rush when they eat those foods. Or it may be the exorphins, the actual exorphins, those morphine-like compounds in the grains. So, I mean, grains can really be a triple whammy. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And the metabolites of digestion of those grain substances can be uh, alcohol-like substances and opiate-like substances as well, even if they don't, aren't present in the grains initially uh, in when they're being digested, if we don't have the right structure for digesting them, which, uh, according to to your work, shows that we don't. Yeah, a lot of people don't. Yeah. Uh, they're they're sitting in our gut. Produce uh, what do what do grains do when they're in a nice warm environment? They produce alcohol. Ah, uh, yes, they do that too. Absolutely, and you know, yep, grains and sugar and whatever uh, carbohydrates ferment. Right. So. You know, what do you see at, at, at AA meetings? You see people standing around smoking cigarettes, eating donuts, and drinking coffee. <laughs> exactly. And uh, they're all like little walking distilleries. Yep. Um, yeah, they're trying to soothe that, you know, reward deficiency syndrome that they've got. Uh, they, they're not using alcohol anymore. They're making an effort. Right. Uh, but they find that they just desperately crave all of these other substitutes in order to keep going. Yeah. And my experience in working with some of um, the alcoholics that I've worked with is is that I think that there's just a very, very fundamental um, dysglycemia, in other words, a problem with blood sugar that, that makes um, alcohol a much more attractive um, substance for people. Right. And um, I've seen people, when, you know, getting their carbohydrate cravings under control who also find that the alcohol cravings tend to also sort of follow suit. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and even not using drugs or alcohol for many, many years, I still had cravings for uh, sugar and grains, and once I completely eliminated those from my diet, uh, those cravings have really diminished significantly. So it's not so much one day at a time anymore. No, uh, it's, it's very different. It's uh, it's more like there is an absence of that issue, yeah. and that's a very strange experience once you've uh, when you've been dealing with the opposite for so long. Right. Well, people are taught that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Um, they're taught to think that way that you're never really cured. That you just basically have to take it one day at a time. You'll always be tempted. There'll always be the risk of relapse, and you just have to fight it every day. And um, you know, in in in, in ex, you know, in, in my experience, at least in terms of some of the clients that I've worked with, that it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Although I think, in in some senses, uh, for example, if I think if I were to uh, start eating grains and sugar again, right. I would pretty quickly jump back into that uh, sort of cycle of craving and then satisfaction and craving and satisfaction. And um, and if I started drinking alcohol again, I, I'm guessing I would still uh, jump back into that as well. Right. Yeah, it's right. So the physiological and metabolic and, and neurophysiological uh, pathways are still there. They're just yeah. quiescent because I've 
done other things in the meantime. But it's just a matter of whether you've um, whether you feed those or not. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And of course, getting people to understand this is is one of the reasons I wanted to do this show is to help people understand sort of the mechanisms behind all of this so they can learn to recognize these issues in themselves and other people and also hopefully you know we can offer some um, some approaches with respect to uh, you know the, sort of the more high tech approaches like brain training right. neurofeedback and also you know the lower tech approaches like what what are some of the dietary mechanisms that help to trigger um, trigger these behaviors right. and understanding it's all part of a larger constellation it's that uh, addiction is kind of addiction. Um, we need to go to another break, and so I would like to ask everybody to stick around for just a couple of minutes here. we got John Anderson from the Minnesota Neurotherapy Institute. We're talking about the psychology of food addiction and what high and low-tech solutions we have for that. And my name is Nora Gidgaudis. You are listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. We will be back in just a minute. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. NBC science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Gedgaudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended, a jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgaudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com. Want to learn more about neurofeedback? Want to find a trained clinician for yourself or for a loved one? Or maybe you are a professional looking to offer this powerful, non-invasive technique to improve results for your toughest clients. At EEG Info, we are the leading provider of neurofeedback resources, videos, and training for the next generation of neurofeedback professionals. If you want to improve symptoms of emotional and behavioral dysfunction, this non-invasive approach is the answer you've been looking for. Neurofeedback is successful in helping people of all ages achieve a feeling of greater health and well-being. Visit us at eeginfo.com today to learn more about neurofeedback or to find a local clinician who can help you or someone you love. Unlock the full potential of your brain today. Visit eeginfo.com. The Interstate Sportsman Talk radio show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice American Network with hunting and fishing info news, talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join hosts Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. 
Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Well, welcome back to the show. This is Nora Gadgaudis, and we are talking today with John Anderson of the Minnesota Neurotherapy Institute. We're talking about the psychology of food addiction. And um, so, John, some people are actually aware there are some people out there they're they're actually aware of being addicted to certain foods and um, and certain things and some aren't aware what is your approach as a psychologist to somebody who says okay i'm addicted now what well i do neurofeedback as my primary um, uh, profession so that's my first intervention uh, but I also use lots of other peripheral biofeedback techniques like heart rate variability training, and yeah. I use uh, other interventions. But I'd say neurofeedback is the, the first approach. Um, and why do you make that the first approach? Well, uh, one of the things that has been shown is that, uh, for example, with drug addiction, you can get a person into a treatment program, but they're really not very available for the treatment. They're not... Uh, in some ways, their frontal cortex, which is the part that uh, learns things and reasons things out and understands things, is not really ready to take in the information that they're trying to give them in the treatment program. So doing some neurofeedback makes them much more able uh, to utilize the information that they're getting. This has been shown in several studies. Uh, Bill Scott, from uh, did, who did the Cry Help study in Los Angeles, uh, 121 volunteers in a, a randomized controlled uh, study showed that uh, this was the case, and that's one of the things he reported is that these people were much more able to take in the information that they were getting from the treatment program. So yeah. uh, I don't see neurofeedback as a standalone intervention for addictions. I think it really has to be a comprehensive program. And for food addiction, uh, even more so, because as you said at the beginning of the program, Food is such a fundamental thing. You have to eat something to right. stay alive. And so uh, the ability to pick what is an appropriate uh, food choice for me uh, really takes uh, a good structure and a knowledgeable structure in addition to whatever other interventions you're doing. Yeah, I um, I have had a number of experiences working with people who were Oh, I can think offhand. There were a couple of people I worked with who were actually using alcoholics when they when they started with me, which isn't normally what I would be inclined to do. Usually, if I hear somebody is still using or having a problem, it's like, look, why don't you get into a recovery, you know, state, and then you know, and then we'll talk. But it was a you know kind of a case by case situation, and and it 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 struck me that uh, that this could work, and, and it turned out it did. Mm-hmm. But what what I found in, uh, I'm thinking of two cases in particular, in both cases, you know, these people, I think, were in part, you know, using alcohol as a means of self-medicating what were otherwise states of anxiety, of depression, uh, insomnia uh, in one case. You know, a person was using it to help them sleep. Um, and the neurofeedback piece, help their brain get into a much more functional place 
where some of that, some of those feelings of anxiety and depression and whatnot sort of lifted off of them so that they felt a little less inclined to self-medicate, not that they didn't have a problem with alcohol, but they became, they came to a place where they were much more open to addressing that issue. They were open to the idea that maybe that, you know, alcohol wasn't such a great thing or wasn't helping them as much as they thought and open to the idea of making some dietary changes that could give them, you know, more of a long-term uh, foundation for recovery. Well, I agree, and I think it's been fairly clearly shown that people tend to gravitate to the substance of addiction that sort of fixes or medicates what's wrong with them. Uh, people with attention disorders often gravitate to the stimulant medications like cocaine. Yep. Uh, Drugs, I, I guess, uh, used to be a medication. Uh, and people with depression might also gravitate to cocaine, but they also might gravitate to alcohol. Um, people with a lot of anxiety sometimes initially gravitate to alcohol or possibly uh, marijuana right. uh, as their drug of choice. And so I think the same is true with food, that we try to medicate uh, how we feel. Yep. And... Yeah, I, I see food addiction as having so many potential factors associated with it. It's so much more complicated. There's the obvious stuff like sugar or exorphins that we were talking about, those morphine-like substances in grains and milk products, food sensitivity issues. But there's also, you know, some people just simply have rigid patterns that, that will, people will adopt um, of thinking and behaving that, that make any kind of change in their lives difficult. Uh, some people can't even imagine a different way of eating. They've just eaten this way all their life. I've eaten, you know, uh, I've eaten, uh, you know, jelly on toast every morning of my life, you know. Some people simply lack self-awareness and body sensitivity, so they don't make the correlation between what they eat and, and how they feel. Um, some folks are just sort of OCD about their eating patterns, uh, almost ritualistic. And then there are those that use food as self-medication, as that way of, you know, of of uh, using comfort foods to deal with feelings of anxiety or depression or low self-esteem. Right. And then finally, for some, it may even be a way of covering old trauma, like the sexually abused woman who eats until she's obese to create a layer of protection around herself. Right. I mean, the cool thing is, is that you know, neurofeedback, of course, gets at some aspect of nearly all these things. Right. Well, one of the things I ran into when I was doing my research for the show was um, the frontal uh, lack of activity that people run into when they have long-term uh, abstinence, uh, where they're not really feeling good, they're not really recovered, but they're just not using. Uh, the traditional neurofeedback approach for addictions is alpha-theta training. Right. And when you do alpha-theta training in the parietal areas, it tends to recover this frontal activation uh, as a result of that. So the research has shown that doing the traditional uh, intervention that Penniston and Kukowski came up with uh, is really quite effective at, at resolving this frontal slowing uh, effect and restoring the frontal cortex to its ability to self-perceive and self-regulate and monitor behavior and uh, inhibit unwanted behavior and all of those things that we need when we're recovering from substance addiction. Yeah, and how you know how do you reason out that um, you know th that mechanism? You know, we're training at the back of the brain, activating the front of the brain. 
Well, everything in the brain is interconnected, and there yeah, really isn't any individual part of the brain that operates by itself. It's all interactive with subcortical structures that we talked about earlier, yeah. uh, the more limbic uh, structures, the some people would call the primitive brain structures. And when we activate a certain area, it requires that the rest of the brain in, be involved. Yeah. And uh, we can't separate those out. I did have a... a an example, a little off topic. I was riding on the bus the other day, and uh, a couple of people behind me were talking about a roach problem they had in their apartment. <laughs> and they talked about how they had used some sort of super toxic spray, uh, and they had all gotten sick, and their dog had gotten sick, and, and yet then they went and repeated that several more times. And it was, okay, <laughs> there's this lack of self-awareness here. There's this lack of body awareness that... If you're if you're making yourself sick, is this a particularly good thing to do? Uh, but they continued to do it because that was just what was prescribed. Right, exactly. Like that one comedian uh, says, you can't fix stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think they were so unaware yeah. of of the potential for harm that they were doing. Oh well, we were just sick for two or three days. Well, I mean that's a serious problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's ama- what amazes me is that, that people make no connection. They're, they're very unconscious of the connection between what goes into their bodies on any level and how they actually feel and function in the world. Right. And, uh, you know, they always assume that there's a psychological thing behind it. If they feel crappy, it must be because they have a horrible marriage right. or because they have a crappy job or because life just sucks. Yeah. as opposed to making the connection that emotions are nothing but biochemical storms in your body. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the better the quality of your biochemistry, um, certainly the better the forecast, but well, also that neurofeedback, you know, that, that your brain is an electrical organ as well. And obviously it, things that you can do to manage the electrical functioning of your brain can also be extremely helpful in managing some of the biochemical uh, balance and uh, the way that biochemistry works in your brain. Well, and the better your biochemistry, the better your neurochemistry. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really can't separate those. No, things. you so, sure can't. You that know, whole mind-body function. connection thing is a total myth. Yeah. You know. It's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one thing. Yeah. If your biochemistry is working, your neurochemistry is working, and if if it's not, then your your brain just doesn't work right. Yeah. It, it it's absolutely true, and. Um, Again, it's, you know, it becomes a chicken and egg thing after a while, too, you know, trying to get at, um, you know, um, you know, what, what, you know, what generated the, uh, what's generating the addiction in a person. Is it, is it the emotional state they're in or is it what they're eating or is what they're eating creating the anxiety that is generating the need to self-medicate that anxiety with more of the same. Um, well, and obviously it's all interrelated. I mean, people do grow up in harsh environments or abusive environments. and they, The hell you say. Uh, yeah, really. Yeah. And they do learn to self-medicate. And, and the interesting thing is at the time they learn to do those behaviors, it's usually pretty functional and almost, I mean, I, I hate to say necessary, but for them to even function and, and make it through life, in order to grow up and be adults, sometimes they have to do that. Right. But then when they get to be adults, it can be very harmful. 
Well, it's sort of like we, we depression and anxiety or whatever are natural physiological responses to stressors in our environment. Right. You know, and so it, it serves a purpose to 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 do things. You know, in order to survive in the, under those circumstances, it's when we get out of that environment and now we still react the same way to everything around us, even though that original threat is gone. Exactly. And then we can't we can't stop the behavior. Exactly. That's when it becomes a problem. Yes, and that's when it becomes an addiction. Yes. So we need to take uh, one more break here. Uh, we're talking with John Anderson of the Minnesota Neurotherapy Institute, and we're discussing the issue of addiction, uh, as well, food addiction in particular. And I'm Norgad Gaudis. You're listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, and stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. NBC Science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Gedgaudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended, a jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgaudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Well, welcome back to the show. We're here talking with John Anderson of the Minnesota Neurotherapy Institute about the psychology of addiction, psychology of food addiction in particular. And... Uh, while uh, while we were on uh, break, uh, John mentioned that uh, you wanted to uh, talk a little bit about a particular uh, case uh, study of his. This was somebody that you had that was addicted to Valium? Yes. Uh, Valium was often prescribed for chronic pain as a muscle relaxant and as a pain medication. And this person had uh, chronic lower back pain and had been prescribed Valium and had become addicted to Valium. And... The withdrawal symptoms that this person experienced were back pain. 
And so their back pain was very severe, and when they took the Valium, of course, it reduced somewhat, but it was still there. And every time they tried to withdraw from Valium, their back pain got worse. Uh, we were able to work with this person, and, and through neurofeedback training and some other interventions uh, and some exercise programs, get them completely off the Valium, and their back pain disappeared mm-hmm. because they really didn't have any functional problems with their back anymore. They'd had an old injury, but it had recovered, and the back pain was completely a result of withdrawal from the medication. You know, in other words, maybe uh, the body was generating back pain, perhaps, as a way of keeping that other substance coming in? Oh, very much so. Yeah. That was how the body was expressing its craving. Yeah. I actually worked with one client who also was addicted to benzodiazepines. They didn't realize that that's what was going on, but it actually worsened their pain over time right. mm-hmm. and uh, made it nearly impossible for them to, uh, I mean, they, you know, their, their, their need for, that, for Valium and, and things like it just became a self-perpetuating nightmare for them over right. time. And it's, in some ways it's a little bit similar to the food problem because this was a prescribed medication. So they say, well, I'm not taking drugs. I'm taking prescription medication. It's medicine. Medicine. It's making me better. Yeah, exactly. And so we're told to eat certain things, and when we eat those things, we have problems. We don't associate it with the things that we've been told by the experts are supposed to be good for us. Right. So what's your response to the person that you can see is addicted who just doesn't see it. I mean, how do you how do you get through to that? I don't. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm moving right along then. Well, I will I would like to answer that though. I have had several clients who who didn't present themselves as addicts and that, you know, from their interview it was pretty clear they were. Mm-hmm. And I just went ahead and did neurofeedback with them anyway. Mm. And about six weeks later, this one person came in to me and says, what do you think about smoking pot? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I went through the reasons why it's not a particularly good idea. And I said, why do you ask? He said, well, I've been a really heavy daily pot smoker, and, you know, I just don't really have any taste for it anymore. Yep. I've had so, the exact same thing happen. That uh, was surprising. The person came in, he was... Um, there were there were actually a couple different things that he, he what he mainly came in for he was having irritable bowel syndrome mm. symptoms so bad that he couldn't even get out of the house mm-hmm. um, couldn't go anywhere could never travel couldn't go out to dinner and it was just as he was literally a prisoner to that problem and neurofeedback really helped turn that around and of course you know neurofeedback was the first thing we did and then we talked about dietary things whatever but what was really interesting was along the way he had a habit of drinking. Um, a couple of beers every afternoon. He also had a big pot smoking habit, mm-hmm. big time, every single day. That was his thing. And he told me one day, he said, you know, I, um, you know, for some reason I just don't feel the need to do that anymore. Right. And he couldn't figure out why that was. I just sort of smiled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was feeling better. Apparently he no longer needed it. Right. Right, so, absolutely. That's the nice thing about neurotherapy interventions of all kinds is that they do change the brain in a way so that people don't need the substance as much as they did before. Yeah, it's sort of a brain dysregulation, those rhythms that sort of establish the timing that drives all of our biochemical reactions. If we can exercise the mechanisms behind, um, behind what establishes those rhythms, 
um, there's a tremendous amount that we can do uh, to improve the way our body uses the things that that we consume and, and help balance the biochemistry. Right. But that's assuming that the brain and the body have the raw materials they need to begin with. Exactly. Or that we're not having excessively pharmacologic reactions to the uh, to the foods that we're eating. Well, and even simply the, the concept of development, uh, there's some pretty good evidence that a lack of omega-3 fatty acids in infancy and early childhood lead to a lack of myelination in the brain and frontal slowing disorders that end up uh, being diagnosed as ADHD. Right. And then kids get stimulant medications, and when they get to be adults, they might start using cocaine. Um, well, all of that is diet-related yep. and developmentally related. It's it's the hardest thing sometimes to get across to uh, you know parents who bring kids in who are, have ADD kinds of issues is that you know diet really kind of has to enter into this at some point and, right. and it's hard to get people to kind of to wrap themselves around the idea that this isn't like a, a brain disease it's you know typically there are you know you don't have kid doesn't have ADD because he has a Ritalin deficiency there are <laughs> mechanisms at play that that right. are being um, activated because of either because of certain food sensitivities this kid has or um, because there are certain things that this kid happens to be deficient in that uh, aren't there that the brain needs in order to be able to pay attention properly. And having those discussions is hard because then you, you're not just dealing with the kid's addiction, you're also dealing with some of the parents' own food issues right. and the, own, you know, the denial that they have of... of uh, of some of this stuff themselves, so you're having to get through um, a couple of a couple of hurdles, not just one. Yeah, layers upon layers. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, one autistic kid um, who, you know, with autism, I just assume gluten case insensitivity, mm. and mom was really reluctant because you know, you know, we all love to have our pizza and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff, and. And uh, she was extremely resistant to changing, um, you know, her dietary. And, and she knew her husband would just never go for it because he just loved that stuff. And how are we going to, you know, have, you know, restrict this from him when the rest of us would be eating this in front of him? And, right. and uh, you know, I, I finally got them on to test the kid for um, for this stuff. They did, did a stool antigen test to figure out whether or not he had that, uh, you know, clinical gluten sensitivity. Two days before his results came in, she, dealing with her, some of her own symptoms, had gone to a doctor and had gotten diagnosed with celiac disease. Uh-huh. You know, so a lot of these things run in families, and it's yes, it's one of those things that um, you know, well, when we're dealing with 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 kids anyway, it becomes uh, an issue of dealing with the whole family and not just the kids. Well, in, in my own experience with my uh, uh, gluten sensitivity, it sounds like we have to go. Yeah, we're uh, actually we're kind of having to wrap it up here, okay. unfortunately. Oh shoot! Well, John, you are one of the finest and most knowledgeable therapists I know, and I personally feel lucky to have your fingerprints all over my brain. <laughs> John is the person who did my neurofeedback a long time ago, and I'm still enjoying the positive and rewarding effects of that. Uh, I've also learned a lot from you over the years, and uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, uh, to talk to us today about this topic and sharing your insights on the psychology of addiction and all of the rest. Um, I suspect we've given quite a few people some new ways 
of thinking about this. So thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure, Nora, and I uh, am grateful for the service that you are providing here. Ah, shucks, John. Well, for the listeners that we happen to have in the Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota area, how can people find you? What's your website and uh, Neurofeedback-institute.com. Sounds great. And so, uh, anyway, everybody, thank you for listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. We'll be back next week. And uh, have a great one. I would like to thank my sponsors, the EEG Institute, offering the most trusted and respected source of information and training for neurofeedback, truly world leaders in the field. You can reach the EEG Institute at www.eeginfo.com or at 818-456-5965. I would also like to thank the Nutritional Therapy Association, the NTA, for their generous sponsorship. The NTA is the best, most trustworthy and reliable source of foundational nutritional education and nutritional therapist training here in the U.S. and possibly the known universe. I just can't say enough good things about this organization. You can find the Nutritional Therapy Association at www.nutritionaltherapy.com or you can call 1-800-918-9798. That's 1-800-918-9798. Tell Marcy Nora sent you. Thanks, too, to Biotics Northwest, the source for exceptional healthcare practitioner quality supplements, for every health professional, you can reach them at www.bioticsnorthwest.com or at 1-800-636-6913. Also, be sure to visit my website at www.primalbody-primalmind.com where you can also get my book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Empower Your Health, Your Total Health, The Way Evolution Intended and Didn't. Thanks again for listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, hosted by Nora Gedgaudis. Come back for another great program next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And have a great week.